welcome to New Books in Sociology. I'm Sarah Patterson, one of the hosts here on the channel, and today we are talking to Renza Neuenhaus and Lori Maldonado about their new book, The Triple Bind of Single Parent Families, Resources, Employment, and Policies to Improve Well-Being. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks, Sarah. We're really delighted to um, talk about Triple Bind. Well, to get us started, can you tell us about your yourselves? Uh, yes, uh, so my name is uh, Renzi Nunez. I'm a sociologist, uh, mostly interested in economic inequality from a gender perspective. Uh, I've been doing comparative work on family policies and other labor market policies. Um, I've done some work on the impact of women's earnings on household inequality and, of course, on uh, single parents. Uh, I did my PhD at the University of Twente, which is in the Netherlands, then I moved to the Swedish Institute for Social Research called SOFI at Stockholm University, and I'm currently an associate professor in sociology there. And I'm Lori Maldonado, and um, I'm a scholar in single-parent families in the U.S. and across countries. And um, I just recently got my PhD from UCLA in June, um, so it's... Um, Great. And, and now I am connected with the Stone Center on Socioeconomic Inequality, and it's based at the Graduate Center in City University of New York, as well as I teach at Columbia. So how did this book come about for you all? Uh, essentially, the, it's a, the, it has a little bit of a, a backstory of a little bit of a history, which is um, that the book came about from an uh, academic uh, debate that Laurie and I used to have. Uh, we met when I was a visiting scholar at the Graduate Center in New York, and I was doing work on family policies, mostly focusing on couples and how um, women's employment was affected within couples. And Laurie was doing uh, single parent work on single parent families, and she um, basically critiqued me for ignoring the different dynamics of um, single parents. And uh, right, right. Um, and then it, it actually kind of, that was Renz's first paper and um, a JMF paper, right? And then we started kind of to talk about um, how do we expand that to look at single parents. So we were really, that became our first paper um, that we wrote together. And it was on single parent families and um, family policies. And um, it was a lot of fun to write. And then from that, I guess we just generated a lot of enthusiasm and, and energy um, around gathering researchers together to talk about single parent families. So and back in 2013, Renzo, is when we um, started kind of to host some seminars um, at conferences. And then um, we kind of started traveling as well and went to Espinet, which um, was in Denmark, and we kind of started to do a lot of streams there where we were just gathering scholars to talk about single-parent families. And um, I guess we were bringing some great people together, and um, we were like, whoa, this is really important work, um, and, you know, it needs to be put together in a story. And so that uh, came the idea of the book, Triple Bind. And then, um, yeah, based on the, what we had, we talked to to the publisher, and um after some, some reviews, they were very, very positive, and we added some 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 additional authors to it, and um, eventually that became the book. So, if you can go ahead and set the stage for us first, um, maybe I was hoping you could tell us what does it mean to be a single parent family, um, and also uh, why do you think we're so obsessed with single parent families, and then um, if you could sort of define what you see as the triple bind for us. Sure, um, just to take. 
uh, a little bit of a, a step back um, with the book, you know, um, and and looking at single parent families when we brought together about 30 um, scholars and it really looks at single parents across more than 40 different countries. And um, this is really like uh, hundreds of thousands of single parent families, right? So it's, it's a really quantitative analysis that we're looking at. And um, single parent families, I don't know if it's our obsession with it, but um, the biggest thing is that their poverty rates are so incredibly high. Um, so we see that, you know, um, I'm from the U.S. and, you know, we could talk about um, that, that particular story. But in the U.S., you know, one in two single parent families is living under the poverty line. So um, it's an area where we want to pay a lot of attention to. Um, and that's kind of um, where we came from. And in terms of the triple bind um, and where that idea came, it was really like that's what single parents um, across countries that we were um, describing this concept of this is the experience where you're a single parent and you have um, one earner in the household, one carer in the household, and you um have an inadequate resources, right? And we can also talk about individual explanations and education and, and um, other socio-demographics, but that being a really big part of just having these inadequate resources, but also having inadequate employment and what that means. And so we um, see that a lot of single parent families are working, but they're working in low income jobs. Um, so that employment context and the inadequacy of employment is something that we pay attention to. And then finally, you know, the triple bind is, well, boy, it's really tough when you don't have resources, you know, you have um, and, and in, in inadequate employment, um, and it's difficult to balance work and family. And then finally, it's sort of this idea of inadequate policies um, where they're just not enough. There's like not necessarily a social safety net that is supporting single parent families. So in the U.S., you know, that means really um, a lack of um, a social safety set for, for families. Um, but we see different, different things um, in other countries as well. Did you want to add anything, Renza? No, I was more triggered by the um, obsession with uh, single parents. Um, that is, of course, very very prominent in, in the US, of course. But my experience here uh, discussing some of the early um, versions of, for instance, uh, the introduction chapter is that my Swedish colleagues were actually more challenging the whole concept of single parenthood because here it's so much more common that, that both parents remain involved in the children's lives even after they separate, that the whole idea that is a single person is parenting for a child is is less um, less applicable here. So it, it, already there we see these very contextual differences uh, in how, how single parents are discussed and, of course, also how their position in society is. Um, and more of an academic point, of course, the, the idea of the triple bind is, is very strongly gendered, right? So, the resource, so first of all, the majority of those households headed by a single, single parent uh, are headed by the, the mother, uh, I think on average in, in Europe, it's 85% of those, those households. Um, and in, if you look at, at, at uh, poverty or uh, work history, for instance, those, or the, the employment opportunities people have, or the, the type of family policymakers had in mind when they designed, for instance, their, their family policies, you, in all aspects, you see very strong gendered biases. And um, of course, those are addressed in many of the chapters uh, in the book. 
Mm-hmm. One of the things I really liked was sort of this taking this bigger picture across different countries because my research background is in the States. And so I always think of, you know, the Moynihan report and those kind of early reports that were sort of um, sounding alarms. So I, what I really liked about the book was sort of this cross-cultural context that you give it. Um, but in part one, you sort of focus on the first uh, bind, which is resources. So yeah, so go ahead and talk about part one for me. Yeah, so it, it, it actually goes well with what you just said about the Moynihan report, but also we, we respond um, quite explicitly to McLanahan's uh, diverging destinies. And and this is this very prominent idea that um, single parents and their children have uh, less well-being because it's mostly or predominantly lower educated mothers who, who end up in single parenting. Um, and of course, we know that a lower education represents lower chances on the labor market. Um, and for instance, uh, lower educational opportunities for, for children. Um, and it makes sense to think of, um, of this as a very US-focused or US-centered um, explanation. But when you look across countries, which is what, what happened in a chapter by Jo Herkonen, is that the lower educated Single parents in the US, I think seven out of 10 face poverty. But in other countries, that is more like three or four out of 10 or even two out of 10 of low educated. And I think that's a really good example showing that it is not just the education that explains the poverty risk of um, of single parents in the US. So of course, the lower educated have a higher risk of being poor, but the degree to which this is the extent, uh, the extent to which is um, this is the case, really varies by, by context. And I think um, th- that's a very important case, a very important example of, the, uh, of doing this kind of comparative research to put even those prominent explanations in, in, in context. And just to add to that, uh, what Renzo was pointing out, um, when we look at it that way across countries, um, you really can look um, beyond just sort of these individualistic um, explanations of poverty. And so a lot of the blaming of single parents that happens in the United States, um, it's, you know, when you look across countries, you can really take these um, these explanations away and look at more structural explanations by looking at across countries. Something else that I found really interesting in this uh, part one uh, was sort of thinking about like the definition of single parenthood and even as just a researcher, you know, that some single parenthood is actually quite a transitory phase um, as well as the idea of a lone parent. As you were saying, Renza, it's like, you know, there might be another parent, they might just be in another household. So I was hoping you could sort of talk about those ideas. Yeah, that's, that's something we struggled with uh, ourselves, particularly um, in, in these larger scale comparisons, it's of course very difficult to, to do justice to all these uh, uh, details. But we had some chapters, um, for instance, Morak Trianor, she, she really looks at, she has a several year panel study on, on single parents and other parents. And um, she really makes a distinction, a very important distinction, for instance, between uh, parents who uh, become single and then stay single, or parents who repartner, but also whether people are, or families are in poverty for a single year, but then recover financially, or that they are, you know, um, in poverty for a very long time. And of course, it's this persistent poverty which is much more, um, more difficult to cope with for for the families and also for the the, the child well being. 
compared to you know one one time one year of, of very low income or poverty income. Uh, so in that sense, these this transitory phases are of course uh, very important. Another um, aspect of that, but is a bit talking about poverty already, uh, about policy already, is that very few single parents um, become parent when they're still single. And many of these inequalities um, of, of having a subpar uh, job or not having a job, for instance, are related to what happens in a coupled household, doing gender in a coupled household, when the children are, uh, are, are just born. And if it's mostly women uh, reducing their working hours or, or not uh, being employed... Uh, in these couples, you know, a couple of years later, the couple separates. And then, of course, it's the mother who is, on the one hand, more likely to to take care of these children, but also um, to um, live in poverty or to have difficulties finding an uh, adequate uh, job. So that, that, those are examples of how this, what, what we call in the book, uh, Hannah Sagel and Isabel Hübchen, they have a chapter on the, on the life course perspective. Um, that really addresses these kinds of uh, issues. And of course, also how the life courses um, in, in our countries have become much more diverse, um, as they address that as well. And then the other part of your question, uh, Sarah, was um, that indeed, yes, yeah, that indeed so, so many families are still involved in, uh, the both parents are still involved in, in um, their children's lives after they separate. In, in Sweden, we saw... Uh, we see, we've seen that increase very quickly and in 2013 I think it's the recent data in the, in the book 35% so one in three of the children whose parents separate they, they, they live with both parents and they live actually 50% of the t- approximately 50% of the time with uh, both parents and when there's a chapter by Sarah uh, Fonton and, and several colleagues who who look at the well-being on different dimensions of these children, and what what that chapter shows is that these children uh, living with both parents, that their, their well-being in many dimensions is actually fairly similar to that of children growing up with uh, both parents in the same household. So, of course, this is a perhaps it's a bit of a selective group of parents who manage to do this, but. Uh, but even if, if you know if their level of education that they're highly educated, um, if that's accounted for, these results still hold up, and it's at least a very promising finding that that uh, we talk for, for often about the lack of resources of single parents, but here we see an example of that these resources are becoming uh, more more available to these children growing up with that. And also, um, um, just thinking of the co-parenting in Sweden and and how that has really changed our notion of single parenting um, and, and that shared residence. Um, and Anne Sophie Devander and Nicholas Corsal they do a really interesting piece because they look at how um, parents share leave and how um, fathers do take leave as well. And so it's this idea of you can actually have policies that support these families. Um, and you know, and, and Renza can go a little bit more into like the leave policy and kind of how that works in Sweden. But um, it just it, it seems to really support the family, you know, and gets and gets both parents really involved, and they're able to share the leave or chance to leave really easily um, if they need to for their families. Yeah, absolutely. So this this Swedish parental leave is is 
gender neutral. So each parent, irrespective of mother or father, uh, the word mother or father is, isn't even available in the Parental Leave Act, I think, or is present. So both parents get the same amount of leave and they can transfer part of that to, to each other. But uh, currently, three months of leave have to be taken by the mother and three months have to be taken by the father. If the family doesn't do that, they uh, the, the family loses uh, the leave and also the, the, the payment during the leave. Um, so that's a strong incentive to, to mostly get fathers involved. And that has been fairly um, effective. So these um, reserved months of parental leave uh, been effective in Sweden, uh, but also, for instance, in Norway to, to, to get fathers involved. And in Sweden, it turns out that um, even after separation, uh, these fathers still continue to take leave, slightly less than fathers who uh, did not separate, um, but um, still considerable amounts um, of leave to take care of their children after separation. Yeah, I think um, I think there's a few chapters in part two, right, that really kind of emphasize things like leave or union coverage really matter in terms of gaining adequate employment. So I thought that those uh, were a really nice addition to the book. Um, so something you brought up before that I want to bring back up from part two is this um, looking across the life course uh, in terms of, you know, I think it's chapter eight specifically, they talk about how risks matter at different points in the life course. And so I was hoping you could talk more about that, that idea. Uh, yes. Yeah, so um, the whole notion of um, this, this standardized life course of, of you, you find a partner, uh, you have children, and then you know, this typical traditional breadwinner model, for instance, or male breadwinner model. Um, and then, and then, you stay together, this, this sequence of events is, is getting more diverse. And, and also the ages at which people make these transitions or these uh, choices are getting more diverse. And um, you see that, for instance, the uh, poverty risk of, of single parents with very young children are much higher than the poverty risk of um, um, uh, when, when the children are a little bit um, older. And the same goes for the, uh, the employment rate of single parents, for instance. So, of course, and we know that from, from um, all kinds of research, it's, uh, the care responsibilities or the care, uh, are more difficult to combine with, the, with regular employment, you could say, or paid employment uh, when the child's very young um, compared to uh, when the child is a couple of years um, um, older. So when we when we analyze these kinds of um, uh, uh, processes, then or policy outcomes, for instance, we need to to, to consider which policies are relevant to which uh, so a single parent. So, for instance, um, childcare or early childhood uh, childcare and education is really important f um, early on in the life course, and uh, you know school day organization of school days a little bit later. Um, in the life course for, for single parents. And um, so Hannah Zagel and um, Sabine Hübken, they, they, um, they look at these different kinds of policies. So about um, um, uh, training early on in the parents' life course, you could say, uh, about active labor market policies, um, but also at alimonies or in-work benefits across this life course uh, perspective. Well, something I think a lot about in terms of my own research about caregiving is this idea that, you know, 
especially in relation to single parents, is when in the life course they have, you know, children and are lone parents, if they are, it really sort of impacts their accumulation of human capital, right? So it so yeah. it really determines, um, I saw a presentation recently, you know, about teen pregnancy and this, this idea that like maybe it matters more now because it's so unusual. Well, I mean, it's still frequent, but it's still unusual. And so maybe it has more of an impact today than perhaps it did previously. You know, obviously in the 1950s or before that was, you know, people were much younger when they got married. And so just this shift in the life course and when things matter, I thought was really interesting to think about. Yes. Although this specific hypothesis that you that you raise is really interesting, I don't think we we specifically tested that in the book, but it seems to be very plausible to argue that um, now that um, being you know now that we have so many more dual owner uh, families that to have to to make ends meet on a single wage is is of course more difficult, and that applies to to all kinds of families. But um, if if the human capital or the educational experience or early work experience is, is more limited early on in life course, the, the consequences might be more profound. Uh, I think that's a very plausible hypothesis. Uh, indeed, yes. So then in part three, you guys talk about redistributive policy. So I was hoping you could sort of bring up some of the stuff in that part. Yeah, absolutely. If you if you allow me, I would then first to talk a little bit about uh, one of the last chapters in, I think it's the last chapter in in, in part two, which is about the, how employment and and health are related, uh, because it sets up um, a good answer to to your question. Um, so mostly in 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 Europe, this 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 perspective or this paradigm, which you know, is often referred to as social investment, which is the idea that government should try to activate their citizens, right, to support quality employment, to support employment um, so that people can maintain, you know, or, or um, uh, maintain a good good livelihood based, based on their wages and their, and their um, independent employment or being employed. Um, and sometimes that's argued to come at the expense of, of this re- redistribution, so like social assistance or child benefits or housing benefits, for instance. And what we did in, in uh, these chapters, we, it's well known uh, in, in, in the vast literature that employment is associated with better self-reported health. And of course, the causality goes both way, ways here. But um, what we did is to see if the, whether that's also the case for single parents. And it turns out it is. So employed single parents report better health than those who are not employed. But I think the policy story of that chapter is that if countries invest in the employment opportunities of these uh, uh, single parents. So they provide um, uh, public childcare, or they provide these, uh, what, what we call here, active labor market policies. So try to support people, who, the, the unemployed, to find proper employment by training or public employment service, etc. Then, so these, these active policies, of course, they, they um, are somewhat effective in increasing the number of single parents who are employed. But among those single parents who are employed, you also see an even greater um, health benefit associated with this employment. And when you look, for instance, at childcare, it makes, this makes a lot of sense. So it, it prevents single parents not being able to, to, to hold on to a job. But for those who are employed, if there's childcare, there's much less stress involved in, in, in um uh, combining all the responsibilities they have uh, on their plate. So um, 
these policies they can you know increase the number of employed but also increase the benefits of uh, of that empl- associated with that employment um, but what we also found in that chapter is that those who are not employed and we don't know why they're not employed in this uh, in this study but for those who are not employed in these countries where many single parents are are employed they report slightly less well uh, less good health um, and for those those who don't have employment, in particular, the social assistance and, and child benefits, prove to be very important in avoiding all um, too bad health, you could say, or the uh, reporting uh, worse health. Um, and then the more general finding, I would say, of the section on these redistributive uh, policies is that despite all these um, efforts of supporting uh, the employment of single parents, uh, redistribution uh, still remains very uh, important. Many working single parents live in poverty. Um, and we see, there's a chapter by Jonathan Bradshaw and colleagues, that even among the employed, the um, particular, particularly child benefits and housing benefits, they make up a considerable part of uh, the incomes of working single parents. And I think also, um, just to add to that, um, just the value redistribution, um, it's also the way that the policy design is. And so we kind of talk about um, Anne Morrison, since she goes into this idea of targeting with universalism with child benefits, that that particular idea is um, really helps to live with the poverty. So it's um, really helpful to sort of have these universal designs, um, you know, the child benefit for all, for all families. Um, but then if you could target, you know, an added benefit, um, for a single parent, in, in addition, you know, that, that particular design seems to work well. Uh, so sort of that idea of, you know, things, you know, family policies are good for all families, but they're really good for single parent families. They really, really help in terms of reducing poverty and many things. Yeah, absolutely. And so there's one more chapter that, that almost sometimes keeps me awake, I would say, is uh, it's a chapter by uh, Bea Cantillon and, and, and colleagues. And then what what they what they show and actually they, it's fairly um, straightforward analysis, but it, it, it still it worries me in the sense that their findings worry me that the minimum gross wages uh, in a number of countries uh, are declining and actually uh, fall below below the poverty line. So if you work full time for this minimum gross wage, even before taxes, you don't. Uh, on a single wage, like many single uh, parents, uh, you don't end up above the, the poverty threshold. And the response has been by many governments, by several governments, to use part of the government uh, budget to support these working uh, single parents. And um, this is by um, um, child benefits, for instance, or um, in-work credits. And, of course, that that is effective in, in reducing the poverty among those single uh, working working single parents. Um, but the levels of minimum income protection, so for instance social assistance, uh, have been falling as well. So in societies where employment is, is considered more important to um, achieve economic well-being, um, it's more and more difficult for those who work for minimum wages or just above minimum wages to actually reach the poverty threshold. And for those who don't have a job or can't find a job or are fired, 
the um, minimum income protection level, you could say, social assistance is increasingly inadequate in many countries. Uh, part four is sort of reflections back upon the whole book. And one of the things uh, I I liked each chapter um, individually, so I hope we can go through each one. But in chapter 19, uh, the takeaway really is that we need to avoid talking about it in terms of a deficit model, um, about single parents, you know, as a deficit model. So I was hoping you could sort of talk about how we do frame this research and um, in some suggestions going forward. Yes, I think you're referring to the uh, the chapter by Gideon Calder. Um, I love tropic Perhaps you you just said that, but um, perhaps Laurie, you you want to say something about that? Um, yeah, that's Gideon's uh, Calder chapter, and I just it. I think the the piece is the idea of the social justice perspective, you know, and bringing that to single parent families, and that like all families, um, you know, deserve. Um, better. And so, yeah, I think that that really, that particular ch chapter, I think really calls us to, to um, an asset-based, a strength-based model. And there was a, there's a one-liner in there. I wish, um, I don't know if Renza knows it by heart, but it just, I think it really hits home um, in terms. <laughs> yeah, go ahead. I know. Yes, I, I, I think I know what you mean. Uh, shall I try to, to quote the sentence here? We're on the same page. <laughs> So what it says is um, that there is nothing inherent about the disadvantage single parenthood brings. For it to be seen that way depends on decisions about the distribution of resources in society alongside uh, dominant assumptions about appropriate family forms, which are contingent and up for revision. And it's this revision that we, we don't have the definitive and the full answer. But what, what the comparative perspective in our book does show is that there are ways that we can um, support single parents in a way that, that there is no or at least very little disadvantage associated uh, with it. So in that sense, um, there are many, um, there are ma so many single parents that that raise their children and they're to be, to be just perfectly fine. And I think that that is um, what, what Gideon Calder is trying to say here with the, there's nothing inherent about the disadvantage single parenthood brings. Oh, a nice highlight about that chapter and about that author, you know, is he's a philosopher and, um, you know, we're, we're social scientists and it was just great to have a philosopher, you know, economist, sociologist, um, psychologist, kind of a whole group of scholars really put their head around this, um, this topic and the contributions. I think that chapter really says a lot. And then I, I really also like Janet Gornick's chapter, and I'm familiar with a lot of her work from my own work. And it's she's sort of arguing, you know, we can't really take gender out of the conversation. And so I was hoping you could talk more about that. Gender is baked in the triple bind, right? I agree with, with what you just quoted, that gender is baked into uh, the triple bind. Is, and I think I said it at the top of this interview um, that – um, it's the majority of, of single parent families who are headed by single mothers. And so they do take the responsibility, but in, at least in, we talked about uh, the US, they also take the blame and, and much of the, many of the consequences of 
for a long time nowadays that's changing but for a long time having lower levels of education working working being less likely to work or if they're working in in lower paying occupations um and of course this is at least in some countries very strongly supported by um um, family policy models that are based on the traditional uh, breadwinner model. So, indeed, it's very difficult to think about single parents or single parenting without considering um, the, the the gender dimension that is associated with it. And you know, if we go. Janet Gornick um, is a great mentor of mine, and I think even bringing out the gender and the, as the, one of the most important pieces of the triple bind, you know, and saying that it, gender is baked in the triple bind. It, this is um, a sentence from Renza, but single parents do better in countries with institutions that support equality of gender and equality of class. So this idea of gender being so important, and going back to the some of these traditional assumptions, um, you know, family policies being based, you know, um, in the breadwinner model, like. In Nordic countries, or you know, a country like Iceland, Edal writes that even the child benefits. You know, the way they only provide them to the the single mother, um, right? So, and and that they, it's calculated on the mother, you know, the, their mother's income, right? And in some cases, the child can live with both um, parents. Um, so, just kind of just there's sort of even these policies that we look at, you know, from these you know gender. Um, um, egalitarian countries, um, we still need to be really focused on how this. Um, interacts with single parent families, right? Because if we did really consider that child benefit, um, you know, and, and we took out those traditional assumptions, it would be much, much better for families. Absolutely. And the sentence you just quoted, I think it, it says exactly that. But in addition to that, when we, when we, from a social policy perspective or from studying social policies, um, I, I'm increasingly aware that when we talk about gender, we talk about family policies. And when we talk about class inequality, we talk about labor market policies and, and unemployment benefits, etc. And uh, I think in probably in all analysis of inequality, but when you, when you look at single parents, those two sets of policies, so to speak, are they, they closely, closely intersect. And in countries like the US, where lower educated in general, um, have have great difficulties on the labor market to 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 earn a living wage. Um, that that is to one that that's a, a great indication of, of of class inequality, the equality between rich and poor. But but of course, it's the single parents, which is very strongly gendered, who have in, in such a society great difficulties uh, to make ends meet and um, to 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 secure adequate um, uh, employment, for instance. Um, so. When we talk about such a gendered um, topic as single parents, I think we, of course, we need to, to consider family policies, of course, but we also need to consider uh, the labor market conditions and the labor market policies um, Great. as well. So then in your all uh, chapter, the very last chapter of the book, you give us some takeaways, but also some ideas for future research. So for any uh, graduate students listening to this podcast who need an idea, I was hoping you could sort of give us the takeaways um, from the book as well as these sort of things that you saw as opportunities for future research. I, you know, just to go back to that single parents do better in countries with institutions that support equal, equality of gender and equality of class. I think that's a really big takeaway. That was a takeaway actually after we finished writing the conclusion um, and we, we keep coming back to that. Um, but we do have five takeaways. And the first is inequality matters um, for single parents. 
So, you know, um, inequality matters, poverty matters, you know, um, there's um, that basically if, if we do tackle these things of inequality, then single parent families are going to do a lot better. No, I, I completely agree. And, and I think in relation to that, that it's the second um, uh, takeaway is that policies that benefit all families matter just as well for single parent families. And of course, that's an enormous truism. And, and of course, we're aware of that. But um, it is a case for, for universalism. Um, it's it turns out that if you design policy, uh, policies specifically for single parent families, it might actually turn out that these policies are not that effective in, in, in improving um, their well-being. And of course, there is an exception of, of, of child support, which can uh, make a difference in, in single parent families. And this, of course, specifically tailored to single parents. Um, but but if, you, if you think about um, child care, for instance, the public childcare in in Sweden. Here I go about Sweden again. It's it's um, it's very affordable. The quality is really high, and it's and it is guaranteed to be available. And in Sweden, if you lose your job, or if you lose your health, or if you lose your partner, you don't lose your, uh, or at least your child does not lose the the childcare. So it can go to the same center. It doesn't have to say goodbye to to his or her friends. Um, so that that represents a lot of continuity to to the child, but of course also to the parent who then can work on on getting better or to find uh, a new job. And I think that is something that is, of course, not specifically good for single parents, but the whole point is that it is good for everyone. And um, and single parents, just as well as all other parents, um, benefit greatly from these kinds of, of policy arrangements. Mm-hmm. And then also uh, the sort of really involving fathers, um, but involving both, you know, the mothers and the fathers and, and this idea of shared, um, both providing for them and both caring for the, for the children. Um, in, in a lot of like kind of previous research, we looked at single parent families and we just assumed that the fathers were missing. Um, and, it, and in many cases, that's just not the case. And so it's really how to involve both parents into their children's life is really important. And so it's kind of back to the, the Sweden uh, case, <laughs> my favorite case, and the idea of even these policies really help fathers to take leave because um, a separated fathers to take leave because they're really trying to um, get the parents to agree, you know, to share leave. Um, and that, that, you know, that, that, that's really beneficial. These ideas, these policies that support shared parenting, um, are really, really beneficial to these families. Absolutely. And I think that the last two takeaways are that, um, pretty much discussed before, but it's about the investments in, uh, employment seem to have, uh, to be associated with very positive outcomes. So the, the, um, if you're actually supporting your parents to, to combine work and family, they do. And they have jobs. And also, it's not that they just have a job. They also have better jobs that are probably associated with better wages. Um, we've seen, we, we discussed about how they're associated with better um, health outcomes. We have a chapter by a colleague, um, Juan Beyond, and he, he shows that if there's uh, a better union coverage or if there's paid leave, the thing parents are more likely to have a middle-class income, for instance, um, and also to lower chances to, to be in poverty. So um, these kinds of investments do seem to, to matter for single parents, but for those who, for whatever reason, 
don't have a job or can't have a job. Um, of course, the redistributive policies do remain very important, and also for many who actually have a job in these increasingly unequal labor markets of ours. Um, redistributive policies, such as child benefits and housing benefits, uh, remain very important. So I think those are the, the key takeaways uh, in addition to um, our argument um, about the supporting equality of gender and equality of uh, class. Laurie, do you want to talk about the recommendations for future research? I think the biggest lesson is just looking at single parents and, and how do we, um, you know, what, what surveys, what instruments, what research do we have that we can capture um, single parent families better, right, in the data? Yeah, we talk about that. Um, much of the research we've been presenting here, m- many of the um, studies are country comparative. We have some very detailed country-level panels um, as well. But the challenge of many of these surveys is that they're sampling households. And when you talk about single parents, you it, it becomes more important than ever, I would say, to, to look at the ties of the household members to people outside of the household. So very often the other parents, so to speak. Um, because those children, if you're interested in the children, they don't live in a single household, but they live in two, for instance, households. Um, and everything that happens in both of the households, of course, will matter for these children. And, and we don't really see that in, in many of the current surveys that we, that we have available. Um, so I think there, there lies a huge opportunity for, for, um, well, for future research. And there was, even in the, the Swedish chapter, they looked at registry data in Sweden. So that's like all the um, households in Sweden um, to look at how separated fathers share leave. And it was just such a point of access in things that we didn't really know. Um, so looking at the fathers um, is, is becomes really important. I agree. And then um, the, I think another so we talk about the importance of the life course perspective so which is also a way of we need more longitudinal data more detailed data about the differentiation between single parents there's no, no such thing as a, just a single parent right there's all diversity um, going on but the other thing but laurie i think you can say much more about that is that we really need to expand our geographical scope we, we, in our book we look at we mostly look at um, OECD countries, which is high-income countries. Um, but you started looking at, at other countries as well, right, Laurie? Yeah, I think and looking, starting to think about going more global for single parents um, and looking more at middle-income, low-income countries. Um, you know, we, there, there are some opportunities to do that. Like I've done a little bit of that with um, my dissertation using the list data and um, the world policy data. But, you know, it's looking at, um, I was able to look at South Africa and India, um, as well as some Latin American countries. So really looking at that, um, expanding to, to more than just OECD countries, but looking at non-OECD countries and, and what those new insights bring to us. So expanding the, the scope of comparative research to other countries. Yes. And, you know, as a, as a small footnote to that, of course, um, looking in more detail what's going on within countries, regional differences or differences between, in the US, of course, between states or how municipalities implement um, national policies, let's say childcare availability, for instance. Um, I think that's another venue for future research. Um, we know very little um, about that, I think. So what are you all working on now? <laughs> A lot. <laughs> 
a great question, Sarah. Um, I think it's it's so interesting. You know, the book, it was such an amazing project for us. Um, we were both junior scholars and, you know, we really got senior scholars and just great experts um, to be a part of it. And, uh, you know, to kind of put together a 500 plus page book is a daunting task, but it really was such a wonderful experience. Um, I think Gorenza and I can, can, can agree to that, you know, and then after you write a book, you have so many more ideas um, and, and so many more places to go um, in, in the research, you know, that um, me as a professional researcher, but just where the field can go. Um, it's, I think it's pretty exciting. So my particular research, I'm, I'm again, trying to kind of go more global to get more countries. Um, and then I think in, in the long term, I would love to look at, um, more about what this means to the United States um, and look at what um, shared parenting and co-parenting means more to the United States um, in the comparatives perspective. Go ahead, Renzo. Yes, well, that sounds, of course, very interesting. Um, um, and I agree with the, with those directions that those should be uh, pursued. Um, I've just recently published uh, two papers on how women's earnings affect inequality among households. Uh, and there I've been focusing mostly on, or actually only focusing on coupled households. And well, as the book shows, and of course, as, as everyone knows, families are much more diverse nowadays than, or have always been much more diverse than, than only couples. So I tried to, to expand that, that, that line of research to, to, incre- to, to better look at what, what the consequences of women's earnings are if you consider the whole diversity of, of family forms. And um, um, I, I'm not really sure what to 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 expect there because the, the hypotheses are pretty pretty contrasting. But I'm, I'm very excited to um, to to look into that uh, a bit further. And Renzo, the diminishing power of one. Yes, so um, that's a paper on single parents in Sweden. I, I don't want to say too much about that paper yet because it hasn't been peer-reviewed, but we, we used register data. It's a collective work with uh, Kenneth Nelson and Susan Alm. And um, we, we use Swedish register data to look at poverty in Sweden. And people in Sweden always think of Sweden as the, uh, the, the country of great uh, equality. But it turns out that poverty among single parents in Sweden, is rising really rapidly. And it seems to have to do very little with the availability of parental leave or, or childcare, which is still fairly generous and, and um, available and affordable. Um, but probably it has to do with what is going on on labor markets or with unemployment benefits. But um, regarding that, I would say um, stay tuned. Thank you. Sounds like a lot of interesting work. Um, thank you again for being here with me today. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having us. And um, if I if I may add a little so um, advertisement, yeah. I would say, and is, or counter advertisement, perhaps it is. It is. Um, yes, please. <laughs> in case you're still interested in this book, uh, please don't buy our book because it has become. Um, so there, there's a beautiful hardcover. Uh, it is. I think really beautiful, available from, from Policy Press. But that we had a very generous grant from an initiative called Knowledge Unleashed. And they they paid the open access fee. So you can just download the full PDF of the book um, uh, for free. And, and that has everything um, uh, available just for everyone who is interested. So don't buy our book. Wonderful. <laughs> well, thank you again for being here today. Thank you very much. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you, Renzo. Thank you, Renzo.